You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. If you love only those who love you, what good is that? These are some of the most well-known words that Jesus ever spoke. People who love us are easy to love. Enemies, the kind that threaten our lives or our way of life, don't come along too often, thankfully, and we try to avoid them. We're more familiar with those kind of in-the-middle in frenemies. It's kind of a silly term that showed up in the dictionary about 15 years ago, but it's not a bad way of describing those passive-aggressive, two-faced relationships that drive us crazy. Enemies who pose as friends, people who talk behind our back, those who seem to be friends but are, in fact, rivals. Relationships with these people are often complicated and make us feel quite unsafe. They're in our families, they're at work, even in the church. In the gospel passage tonight, Jesus begins with a powerful demonstration of loving all kinds of people. The disciples were invited to what we know as the Last Supper. They were all followers of Jesus, but they needed to learn more about what true love looked like. Poignantly, this meal marked the last time Jesus would celebrate Passover with his friends. And as it turns out, it wasn't a completely safe place for anyone because of the mix of guests. This kind of makes me sad for Jesus. Think about those who gathered on that most important night. Jesus had spent three years with them, but one of them had been labeled Satan and would deny Jesus three times that very night. There were brothers who argued repeatedly about who would be greater when the kingdom came and Jesus was crowned king. One physically leaned on Jesus as a gesture of affection. Another is riddled with serious doubt that he carries beyond the resurrection. There's a dishonest broker, a former swindler, and of course, there's the one who will betray him. Those at the dinner are mostly seen as friends of Jesus, but it's not absolutely clear who's who. As a mentor of ours used to say, the Lord has some strange friends. Jesus knew that his church would never survive and thrive unless those in this inner circle fully embraced his love for them and then truly loved one another. Through the rivalries and the failures and the weaknesses and the idiosyncrasies and the sins, through it all. When I retired from my day job years ago, I had one goal in that last year, and it was to finish well, not to be some kind of slacker who just slid for home, but to give it my best shot to the very end in spite of the complexities of a changing work environment and the challenge of respecting a coworker that definitely fit into the frenemy category. Given the situation, I knew it was time for me to retire. By the way, that was my second of four retirements. 
<laughs> I just love those parties. <laughs> Tonight's gospel tells us that Jesus, fully secure in the Father's love, knew the time had come for him to take his next and most difficult step. Considering who was there, we are truly surprised to read in verse 1 that Jesus continued to love them all, right through to the end. He loved them all. And this last dinner together would be pivotal in their understanding of what that meant for each of them. In my work with children, the most effective lessons I ever gave were the ones where the kids participated in hands-on activities. Whether it was cooking green eggs and ham to make a Dr. Seuss book come alive, or acting out the story of the three bears. And Jesus here in John 13 patiently touches the disciples' point of greatest need and leads them to a most important truth in a very hands-on and engaging way. They needed to get the truth inside of him, that inside of them, that love is more than words, it's more than feelings, Love is demonstrated and experienced most powerfully through embodied hands-on actions. Jesus and his followers gathered for the meal in a rented sp space as had been planned. But as we read the account in John, we realize there must have been no house servant to wash their feet. Whatever the reason for the absence of a servant, it was problematic since foot washing was virtually always done by servants and was considered a menial and often repulsive job. So the room was ready, the food had been prepared, and no one made a move. I'm guessing there was an awkward silence, everyone likely thinking about their feet. What were they supposed to do? They didn't dare look at Jesus or one another. So someone just started eating. Ironically, Luke 22 tells us that as they ate, some of the disciples were arguing again over which of them was to be the greatest. And reflecting on that moment, Richard Foster writes this. The disciples were keenly aware that someone needed to wash the other's feet. The problem was that the only people who washed feet were the very least. And no one wanted to be considered the least. So there they sat, feet caked with dirt. Then Jesus, secure in the love of the Father, does the unimaginable. He gets up, he takes off his outer robe as only a slave would do. He picks up a towel and a basin and begins to wash their dirty feet one at a time around the circle. Foster interprets Jesus' unexpected actions this way. In that moment, Jesus redefined greatness. Jesus, who had come from God and would be returning to the Father, lowered himself, as Philippians says, and took upon himself the form, the role, the job of a servant, menial, 
It was unheard of. He literally took the lowest place in the room next to 12 pair of filthy feet. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of heaven, who had lived for years surrounded by the ugliness of sin and soon would die, poured out his love on all of them in a very tangible way, no matter what their failures might have been or would be in the future. Of course, this scenario is completely out of our cultural context. The first thing Jesus did to show them how much he loved them was to set aside any sense of his divine identity and wash their feet. A few words were spoken, but there was no lengthy treatise, only a symbolic action, and for that culture, that spoke volumes. In the 21st century, when we hear foot washing, the first response is generally, ugh, gross. That doesn't seem sanitary, and it feels way too personal. We think, I don't want anyone to have to touch my feet, and certainly I don't want to touch anyone else's. Others may think, that's kind of cool and outside the box, and they seem eager to participate. But it seems far more normal for Jesus to wash feet in the first century. At least the disciples' feet needed washing. We've all prepared for this service by first washing our own feet, right? <laughs> Trimming our toenails and maybe even having a pedicure. <laughs> Though that does take some of the punch out of the symbolism. But foot washing was the way Jesus chose to show these disciples not only his love for them, but also to model his dream for them. He dreamed that after he left, they would love and serve one another by literally making it the pattern of their lives to take the lowest place and in that downward movement, give up their rivalries and ungodly ambitions to be the greatest. Foster adds in describing this movement downward, no strutting, no name dropping, no efforts to impress, no parading of academic credentials. Right here with his hands in the muddy water, Jesus redefined greatness. Greatness was not being first, it was being last, it was being least. Now why did Jesus choose this action? A couple of things came to me. One, perhaps because he wanted to express his love for them in a way that they would remember. And I'm sure they did. And because the disciples themselves needed to see what love looked like and felt like. N.T. Wright translates verse 15 this way. I've given you a pattern so that you can do things the way I do them, so that you can love the way I love. A few years ago, a friend gave me some needlepoint Christmas ornaments she'd made. It, it was Sharon, she's right back there in the back of the sanctuary. I haven't done much needlepoint myself, but I do know that a pattern is stamped on a piece of fabric 
and the person sewing stitches along the lines and then stitches colors into the spaces and this beautiful design emerges, one precise little stitch at a time. Jesus, in washing his disciples' feet, gives them a pattern to follow, a pattern, a picture to fill in, one that will become more beautiful as their loving actions toward one another and for the world expands and grows. It's quite amazing to think of the creator of the universe kneeling on a dirt floor, but our awe increases exponentially when we realize who was at the table, who had his feet washed, and who ate a piece of bread that had been dipped into Jesus' cup. Judas, the betrayer, who has been hated and reviled through the centuries as the worst of the worst, he was there at the table. He'd been chosen by Jesus as a disciple. He was trusted. Maybe he was considered the most trusted because he held the money and dispersed it to the poor. You heard it tonight in the scripture. He was invited to the table. His feet were washed. He belonged. He was loved. We know that because none of them could believe he was the betrayer even after Jesus pointed him out pretty clearly. When Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, he revealed himself to be a savior who loves his friends, love those, loves those who pretend to be friends, and those who are outright enemies, loving them all to the end. That takes my breath away. And he's giving us this same pattern to follow. They all knew what greatness in the world looked like. They saw it in the arrogant religious leaders and in the domineering Roman soldiers. And they knew what the desire for worldly greatness felt like. Some of them were living that feeling. But in these moments, Jesus redefined greatness and turned it completely upside down. He promises that as we are set free from seeking worldly greatness, we are offered the path of love. In our lives, what might this love look like? How is it lived out? Well, it might mean letting someone wash our feet. You have that opportunity tonight. Or it might mean caring for the needs of an enemy or a frenemy. Recently, a friend of mine recounted the story of a psychiatric nurse she worked with in a state hospital. Her name was Donna. One evening after finishing her duties, Donna noticed that the feet of her patients hadn't been touched by soap and water in some time. So she took a basin, ran some warm water in it, and invited a patient to put her dirty, cracked, calloused feet into the clean, warm water. Feet like those came from wearing ill-fitting, warm-out shoes. The patient's toenails were caked with dirt and difficult to trim. As Donna washed the ugly feet, the warm water with baby oil softened the calluses and loosened the dirt. She then put a towel on her lap, lifting one foot at a time, 
clipping the jagged nails and rubbing in more Vaseline. And she gave the patient a new pair of soft socks saved just for them. Then she emptied the dirty water, filled the basin again, and began to wash another pair of feet. As my friend watched, she thought and she mused, are these the feet of the one who was declared not guilty by reason of insanity in her court case? Or the one who only last night attacked the nurse from behind, coming away with handfuls of her hair? No matter. It was an embodied, loving action that gripped my friend as she watched it. And it followed the pattern Jesus has stamped on the cloth for us, the pattern modeled for us in the room where there was no servant. Tonight, some of us come with already clean feet to be washed, symbolizing love and servanthood. And that can be a powerful thing if you choose to do it. But beyond tonight, to let go of seeking greatness and to truly love one another, friends, enemies, and others in between, what might this look like? Maybe writing a note or making a call or listening when you don't feel like it and you're exhausted. Maybe refusing to make a negative comment or doing something that needs to be done that's not in your job description. Making eye contact, doing an errand, smiling warmly, offering to pay a bill, not avoiding, extending courtesy and kindness, resting contented in being hidden and small, leading without dominating, or maybe even praying boldly. Last week in Nashville, we had another terrible school shooting that took the lives of three children and three adults. We immediately heard the words, we send our thoughts and prayers coming forth from commentators and legislators and citizens. But when Rear Admiral Barry Black, chaplain of the Senate, opened in prayer, he took a risk and prayed boldly. When babies die at a church school, it is time to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Lord, use our senators to battle the demonic forces that seek to engulf us. In your powerful name, amen. Amen, indeed. And then did you notice that there's this little promise tucked into this passage in John? In verse 17, Jesus says, Now that you know these things about love, about greatness, you'll be blessed if you do them. I want you to know I've never experienced a deeper blessing than when I've been invited by God and then actually followed him to take a bold step for him or to place myself in a lower position and serve someone who is in true and serious need. 
And for me, this kind of promised blessing is received as deep and quiet joy. Of course, there may be difficult and painful moments on this path of love. Being misunderstood is one of the more painful. But the deep joy I've experienced when I've taken even one small step toward that lower place Jesus leads us into has completely taken me by surprise, whether I was lifting or cleaning or driving or praying or listening. Even churches sometimes measure blessing, you remember that's the word, blessing, by success or status or gifts or money or things. We say, God bless me with a new car or a good job or whatever. But that's not God's blessing, not at all. Those are good things, and we can be grateful for them. But the deeper blessing, the deeper blessing, the one promised here in John 13, only comes through following Jesus' pattern of exchanging a thirst for greatness for embodied, hands-on love. The love that Jesus gives and the love that he invites us to pass on to one another. Thanks be to God.